Welcome to another episode of Clinician's Brief, the podcast, where we get to explore the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Watson, and today I'm happy to welcome Dr. Hagar Hauser, a veterinary behaviorist at Metropolitan Veterinary Associates in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Dr. Hauser is here to share some practical advice about a really often misunderstood communication signal in dogs. We're going to be talking about growling. In this episode, we're going to discuss why dogs growl, when growling might actually be a good thing, and how to handle the growling dog. By understanding the underlying motivations behind growling, we can hopefully minimize the escalation of aggression, which is better for us and is better for our patients. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Hauser. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation today. You wrote a wonderful quiz for the Clinician's Brief website, um, and I encourage all our listeners after uh, listening to the episode today to to go over there and take that quiz. Um, It was very informative for me. But before we talk a little bit about growling, could you just introduce yourself to the audience, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up where you are? Sure. Um, So I'm originally from Maryland. I attended veterinary school at the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. I came back up north to do my small animal rotating internship at Friendship Hospital for Animals in Washington, D.C. And then I came to Pennsylvania to do my behavior residency at the University of Pennsylvania um, and stayed in the area and work in a private specialty hospital, Metropolitan Veterinary Associates, where it's all specialty and emergency. My passion actually started with shelter animal behavior and welfare and led me towards this path of behavior. And like I'm sure a lot of veterinarians, I have the story where I got a dog in vet school who was barking and growling and lunging at all the people and dogs that we would pass on walks or coming to the house um, and working with him my dog, Ronnie, I learned that I absolutely love learning about behavior and working through the why things happen. And so I ended up pursuing a special team behavior. And now I get to help dogs just like Ronnie, which is, I feel very lucky to do it. I'm really impassioned about every day. That's wonderful. (laughs) And sounds like Ronnie found himself a good home and ended up influencing the lives of lots of other dogs. So good for Ronnie. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the different contexts. You talked about your own dog, you know, that he lunged at people and growled. So what are some of the different contexts in that dogs do growl? And what are the underlying motivations behind some of those, some of those growling contexts? Sure. So the reason most dogs growl that people are familiar with is in a situation where the dog is stressed and they're trying to create space, we categorize growling as a distance increasing request where they are asking for a potential trigger to move away from them. So a common example is the dog has a bone and somebody comes up, tries to take the bone or a stranger corners them. And growling is a normal, clear communication signal that other dogs understand, humans understand. So as odd as it is, we like when dogs growl because it's a warning sign that's pretty much universally understood. It's the dogs that skip growling that it gets a little bit harder to manage. 
but outside of the dogs that are growling to create space, a lot of people also are familiar with the growl. That means they are ready to play or it's a part of play. So sometimes that does get a little bit confusing and it's something that is brought up in the quiz. Play growling is more of a ritualized vocalization. So uh, playing in puppies, it's very loud and they're wrestling with each other. And a lot of ways that we look at it is similar to fighting, but we can tell the difference between a fight, two dogs that are fighting, two dogs that are playing by a lot of body language. But the growling might stay in that type of play. Um, and we will say most owners are very good at differentiating between a play growl and a growl intended to increase distance. Uh, but there's a lot of ways to look into that. Overall context is very important, uh, as it is with any behavior. Sure, that, that makes total sense. You had talked a little bit about in the play looking for body signals. So, so what are some examples of, of some of those body signals that the dog might be exhibiting if it's playing as opposed to growling in order to, you know, to serve as a communication signal in a combative way? Sure. So with body language, we're always looking at the dog as a whole. So one general descriptor is loose body language. Is their hind end wiggling and their tail is a nice soft tail wag back and forth. Um, look at how they are playing. So let's say it's two dogs. Is it very balanced where one dog's on top and then the other's on top where one chases and then the other chases versus one dog is consistently on top or chasing and looks a little bit more intense. Uh, if it's between a dog and a person, a really common time is a game of tug of war. So if the dog is growling and the person lets go of the toy, does the dog then bring it right back and ask the owner to pick it up again? Or do they run away with it to create that distance? So we can look at the rest of their body language, but also how do they respond in the context? That's a that's a good point too. Uh, I've also heard of that kind of like play bow, you know, where they they go down, um, you know, and again, like you said, that really has a very loose look to it. Their their ears are soft, you know, they're soft around the shoulders. They're not standing erect um, and really tight. So yes, exactly, and that classic bend at the elbows with their hind and in the air play bow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, you've said that growling, you know, it definitely serves a purpose and it serves a beneficial purpose in terms of communicating uh, between dogs and other dogs and between dogs and people. So there are cases where dogs have been conditioned to suppress that growl. And so what are the potential risks of conse or consequences when that has occurred? So if a dog is conditioned to stop growling, the way that we think about it is that they will then kind of jump to the next level of how they need to create distance. So if they don't growl, they might just go from staring to lunging or snapping. So it often appears to people as out of nowhere or unpredictable because they didn't get to hear that growl. And as a result, we are at risk for more bite incidents because there's no time to really look and assess the situation. It really breaks down that human-animal bond where an owner is finding their dog unpredictable and they don't feel comfortable managing them. Okay. 
And you do in in the quiz, you describe this canine ladder of aggression. And I, I assume that's what you were kind of just talking about just now, mm-hmm. which you suggest that um, as the intensity of a threat increases, then the dog's response to that threat increases. And so behaviors down at the bottom of the ladder are things like looking away, possibly yawning. Um, growling is actually very near the top. I was surprised. I, I was would have thought it would be more kind of mid the ladder, but it was very near the top, right under snapping and biting. Um, so do these behaviors always occur in that predictable sequence or do we sometimes see some of these behaviors simultaneously? How does that actually look, you know, in the real world? Yeah. So unfortunately the answer is it depends. It's very dog dependent where uh, it's not always, Oh, they're definitely going to hit every rung of that ladder. Uh, Some of them might do some warning signs. Sometimes they definitely are simultaneous. We might get the stiffening and the staring at the same time. Um, Some dogs bare their teeth while others don't. And sometimes that depends on the breed of dog where just their facial structure doesn't allow them to do that obvious bearing of the teeth compared to others. Um, Especially in some of our brachycephalic dogs, we think about their facial expressions are affected just by their conformation. Or a lot of people think about what about with the tail. Some dogs have a dock tail or cropped ears and we can't really use all of it. Uh, So it's more so knowing the individual dog rather than assuming a dog will do all of those warning signs. Uh, Before I examine a dog in one of my appointments, I always ask an owner, so what does your dog look like when they go to their primary care vet? How do they show their signs of stress? And it's such a variety. Some dogs will just freeze and then they might kind of give that whale eye where you see the whites of the eyes before they escalate some dogs hide. And so knowing the individual dog is much more beneficial than hoping that you're going to get all those warning signs. That you're going to see that nice stepwise ladder. That's a, that's a really Mm -hmm. good point. So one of the things we want to make sure that we're doing is that we're not, you know, suppressing that growling um, because that's the thing that can really lead to bypassing these warning signs. Um, What steps should we take when a dog is growling? Like, how do we identify the immediate antecedent so that we can try to figure out what what the dog is telling us? So the ideal response to a dog that is growling is to either remove them from the situation or remove the trigger from the situation, depending on what it is. And by doing that, we show them that they do not need to escalate. So we heard your growl, we understand it, we respect it. And we're going to create some distance so that you don't have to escalate to lunging and snapping. If you're trying to determine the antecedent, you want to look at the environment in and of itself and some potential triggers. This can depend on the dog's history. If they've previously shown uh, growling or other signs of aggression towards these triggers, or if this is completely unexpected, is there something new in the environment? Something that I often like to explain to owners is this concept of trigger stacking also. So even if there's not an immediate action that this, say a person perform that is triggering the dog, if they are stressed from something else that happened recently, even in the past 24 or 48 hours, that might also explain to us why they are growling now in a situation that they might 
not have growled in before. So we think about a dog who's painful. Uh, usually the dog is okay being approached and being hugged, but today they're growling. Oh, well, you know what? Yesterday they went to their primary care vet for uh, back pain. So now they are growling because they can't handle it. So we think about the immediate environment, but also some potential trigger stacking that could have occurred. And then what are some common mistakes or misconceptions that, that you find owners have when it comes to their own dog growling? Yeah, so this is something I speak with owners about frequently because when I explain to them that we like the growl, they're often very surprised. One thing that they're worried about is that if we move away when a dog is growling, that we're teaching them that it's okay to be aggressive. Uh, but the way I try to reframe it is that we just want the dog to feel safe. And when they feel safe, then they don't feel the need to necessarily start to show aggression in the first place. So we don't have to be worried about, um, you know, the dog should know better. They, un they shouldn't growl because I'm their owner and they should understand that I'm a good person. But think of it as dogs are amoral. They don't really understand what's right or wrong. It's more so they understand what's punished and reinforced. And so by giving them that space and avoiding applying our human emotions to the situation, then we can de-escalate that situation too. And another really common thing is that owners are re worried about reinforcing aggression. So if a dog is growling and even barking and lunging, and I say, it's okay, come on, let's get out of here, let's get a treat. Am I teaching them to bark and growl and display aggression? But I try to explain it as these animals are getting into a fight or flight response where that uh, limbic system is overriding the prefrontal cortex. They're in fight or flight mode and they're not learning anything in that moment. They are just trying to keep themselves safe so it's much more beneficial to keep them under threshold so they can still learn in that environment and understand that this is not really a threat. One of the things that I have happened to, and I try very hard not to get a little defensive, um, is in the exam room if, if the animal is growling because it's stressed and it's asking for distance. And the owners sometimes then say something along the lines of, oh, he, you know, he's never growled at a veterinarian before. It must be you. <laughs> and so, and so trying to explain that as well, that the dog is, is communicating with me. Um, I find that can be a tricky thing to walk owners through. Um, have you ever had that experience? Yeah, and I try to explain to owners that every situation is different. Every vet visit is different, where it might have just been that maybe that dog is trigger stacked, where they experienced something stressful in the lobby before they came into the exam room, or the car ride was harder. Um, some dogs display aggression or growling with certain genders, for example, or certain clothing that we're wearing. We are very familiar with white coat syndrome, where if we come in with a white coat, dogs and cats can automatically just show more signs of stress. So rather than thinking that it's an individual person and what they're doing is, well, let's look at what happened as a whole and let's focus on how we can reduce the stress level for the animal now that they're clearly giving us signs that they are more stressed. 
the suspicion is that that dog was probably never comfortable at the vet. Maybe they froze more so and were inhibited. And now they're feeling a little more comfortable just giving that warning sign in that situation. And what are some ways that owners or even, you know, me or my staff inadvertently reinforce growling behavior um, or, you know, and, and what should we be doing instead? You talked about, you know, stepping back, um, getting a treat, doing those things. What other, what other types of, of things can we do in order to make the dog more comfortable? Yeah, I'm often not as concerned about reinforcing fear. I want the dog to know that when they growl, we can create that distance and that's all they have to do. Um, so definitely giving them the space to show them that you don't have to escalate trying to start from a point of creating positive associations. Like you mentioned, giving treats, maybe the dog is more comfortable for seated on the floor. And instead of kind of going up to them and cornering them, it's we're at a distance and they come to us completely on their own. When a dog feels like they can always leave a situation, they're much more likely actually to participate because they feel safer coming and going. It's that consent-based handling that we use. One of the concerns that I have seen with uh, my clients' experiences is that if the, a veterinarian is worried that they're going to reinforce growling and teach the dog that growling is quote-unquote okay, is that often things are pushed through more so. So I had a client who said that their dog was growling and flailing during a nail trim and the staff didn't stop because they said, well, if we stop now, we're going to teach them that if they growl and flail next time, that we'll stop again. So we have to continue. And I just explained, that's not the case. That dog is in that fight or flight mode and you just need to stop and reassess. So uh, definitely more so focusing on how we can de-escalate that situation. You're busy. Your CE needs to be easy, easy to earn and easy to track. Clinicians Brief CE is highly relevant and now more convenient than ever. Study online, from home, or on the go, and always at your own pace. Courses are race approved and designed with your busy schedule in mind. Start your next course today at cliniciansbrief.com CE. talk about some specific, you know, scenarios and situations um, where we might see some of these behaviors and what we can do in order to help these, these animals. Can you explain how doing something like trading a high value treat, uh, if we have resource guarding, how does that work? How does, how does that work? And, and how is that process of desensitization and counter conditioning helpful in a animal that's showing resource guarding? So the idea with resource guarding is the dog has found something that they consider to be high value to them. Sometimes it doesn't really make sense to the human that it's high value. Maybe they stole a sock and that sock is important. But our goal is to decrease the value and help the dog not feel threatened if we're going to approach them. So when we're trading for a high value item, 
what we're trying to do is decrease the value of whatever they have and show them that they don't need to feel threatened when we approach them. So let's say they steal a sock and I say, I have this piece of chicken and I'm gonna toss it over there. When the dog is getting the piece of chicken, I pick up the sock and I say, well, this chicken is much more exciting than the sock that I had. So then we use that as part of a desensitization protocol to say, when you have something high value, I'm gonna walk by, toss something even better towards you and keep going. And they start to learn, okay, when somebody comes close to me, when I have something high value, I get something better. So it's actually good when they come near me and the value of what they have loses its own value because now it's not as exciting. This gets a little bit trickier when the dog finds something incredibly high value, like they steal a steak bone. In that situation, we're just trying to safely take it away from them. But dogs that guard their food or some stolen objects, we're often able to show them that we have more exciting things and we're not the threat trying to take things away from them and remove it completely. So it gives them a little bit more control. They can put down the thing they had and go for something that they feel is better. Yes. Can you provide an example of these uh, desensitization and counter conditioning techniques that can be used if we have a dog that's growling at the approach of strangers? That's something that uh, a lot of clinicians, uh, you know, a lot of my clients come in, especially with younger dogs and they're out, you know, they say we were out for a walk. Every time we walk by somebody, you know, the dog is, is growls and gets upset and I don't want my dog to do that. Yeah, so first I always like to clarify what desensitization and counterconditioning really looks like, mm -hmm. because I often find that when people are attempting to implement it, they uh, put it, the dog in a situation where they go over threshold too quickly and we can't successfully uh, perform that. So desensitization means the dog has to remain under threshold. They're exposed to a trigger, but at a level that they can tolerate it. And counterconditioning is where basically pairing it with something positive and making that positive association. So for example, if it's people on a walk, we have to first determine the distance at which the dog starts to growl or show signs of stress when they see an unfamiliar person. And I also consider the intensity. So uh, what is the person doing? Are they completely ignoring them? Or is it only if people are making eye contact or reaching for the dog? So if it's just that even a person across the street, we have to maintain that distance. And the idea is when the dog sees the person, we reward them for it. We usually cue, give a marker word to say yes, and we'll give them a treat to say, oh, that person is all the way over there. They're doing nothing threatening and I get something good. Oh, maybe it's not so bad when I see people. So over time, we gradually decrease the distance between the dog and the trigger. and we're still creating that positive association along the way. Walks, depending on where somebody lives, that we can control it to some degree. Sometimes we're practicing in parks or in more controlled settings. Uh, when it comes to people coming over to the home, it gets a little bit trickier because automatically the space is limited to some degree, but it's the same concept of the person might be sitting in an adjacent room and they're seated ignoring the dog. Once the dog is comfortable with that, maybe we'll have the person stand up, sit back down, and then kind of build from there. 
how long are some of these, you know, training sessions? Um, you know, should we be doing this for just a few minutes? You know, should these be longer sessions? Does that really affect how well the dog learns? So actually doing shorter training sessions are much better than hours of training. So I usually say we're starting with maybe five to 10 minutes once or twice a day, depending on owner schedule, because dogs learn much better in small frequent sessions rather than one very long one, which I think as humans, we can relate. If we're learning new concepts in short sessions, we can retain that better versus if we're flooded with information. Over time, maybe the dog uh, can't focus, maybe they are full and the uh, motivation from treats is decreasing. Um, or maybe they start to get a little bit trigger stacked. So we like to keep them short. And hopefully that also helps increase compliance for owners to say, if you can just do a short training session after work once a day, that's great. Mm -hmm. We don't need to be going out for an, half an hour or 45 minutes and intensely working on these skills. Right, exactly. Yeah. So you had talked about that dog that, you know, had unfortunately the, the team had tried to push through the dog's nail trim, even when the dog was growling and flailing. And is that a case where a dog can develop this, this idea of learned helplessness? Can you tell us about what that is? Yeah, right. So learned helplessness occurs when a dog is exposed to an aversive situation and no matter what behaviors they exhibit, the situation continues. And so over time, they just stop exhibiting behaviors completely. So uh, this actually came from very, very early studies of dogs experiencing shock at random intervals. They didn't know when it would occur. And eventually the dogs just stopped offering any behavior. And so this is often when people say, oh, the dog is so calm. But if you look at their body language, you see they're more so shut down um, and they're just tolerating what's happening in that moment. And if we have a patient that unfortunately has gotten to that level, um, is there any approaches for addressing or, or reversing that state? So depending on the situation, if we can avoid it completely, that might be one option. But in others, for example, the dog might need a nail trim in the future, that's where desensitization and counter conditioning might be beneficial again. Um, an example I have seen with, with dogs that essentially shut down uh, is when you have a dog who is fearful of other dogs and they are taken to group classes. So they're surrounded by other dogs and they don't exhibit any of these behaviors because maybe they're being scolded or given a leash correction or even an electric collar is being used to suppress any reaction to dogs. So they just stop. And so what we say is, all right, we're gonna remove them from that class and we can work on desensitization and counter finishing to dogs similarly to how we discussed we would with people on a walk where we'll create some distance from, from the other dogs and gradually decrease it. Initially, what happens though, is I warn owners is the dog will start showing reactive behavior, barking, growling, lunging, whatever they used to do, it'll come right out because it's no longer being suppressed. But now we're teaching them how to cope with it to say, okay, when I see a dog, I check in with my person, 
and good things will happen to me. So we're actually teaching them how to deal with the stressor instead of just asking them or telling them to just stop offering any behaviors. Finally, I'd like to talk, you know, go back a little bit specifically to growling during the examination. We talked a little bit about it, but, you know, we definitely, you know, I'm in general practice and time is, is we are always very booked, especially these days. I know it's, it's a problem all over the country. So how can we as clinicians really strike this balance? We want to respect these warning signals that the dog is getting, giving us, but we also still need to accomplish a thorough physical exam and we have a limited amount of time. So, so what can we do in order to really, you know, like I said, strike that balance? Yeah, this is such a great question because I fully appreciate I have the luxury of hour, hour and a half long initial consults, and I can talk through all of this with my clients and with my, with my patients. I can go very slow. So there are programs out there already designed to help primary care vets with this, which is so great. Uh, the fear-free program, the low-stress handling programs, um, and the idea is trying to prioritize things in the appointment time that you have. So one thing is figuring out what is really necessary today. So if you have a dog that is growling at the staff, is the reason the dog is presenting, is it something that needs immediate attention? Is it time sensitive? Or is it something where we can pause and say, we need to reassess whether we need to do this today can we reschedule for a time where maybe we can do two time slots to address the stress in this animal, but also get whatever we need done? Um, also, is sedation an option? So uh, whether we can tell them, let's send you home with some pre-visit medication, so trazodone or gabapentin, and you come back, and then the animal will be less stressed, and we can work through it. Um, versus also, do you have the time that day or in the future, should we talk about injectable sedation where really the animal is completely sleeping and you can really get a lot more done? Um, if they're muzzle trained, can the owner place a muzzle and that way the staff feels safer in that situation? And then what can we do in the environment to reduce stress? Let's say the animal has to have that procedure done that day. Um, can we do the procedure in the room with the owners to make sure that they feel more comfortable? Can we play some background noise? Maybe they hear other animals outside of the exam room that is stressing them out. Can we use our pheromones? Those kinds of things. So um, even in an ER setting, we often talk about there are still things you can do for to reduce stress for patients. Understanding that sometimes we're more limited with um, things that need immediate care. The handling that is done in and of itself can also be beneficial. So there was a paper that came out that said scruffing cats actually increases the length of the examination because the cat will struggle more versus if we use passive restraint and let them sit up on their own, you can get through it faster. So making sure we're also not adding more stress and adding time to our exam fight paying attention to how they respond to that. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about stuff like the the white noise or the background noise. Um, you know, there's apps on your phone for that, you know, to put that in. 
Do you find that most dogs are more comfortable in the room with their owners as opposed to, you know, being taken away? You said, you know, can we do this? That Can we draw blood for the heartworm test, you know, here in the room with the owner? Um, or are there truly dogs out there that that are better away from their owner? Because I have seen, you know, over my 20 years, I have seen people argue both sides of that. It's a great question. And I will say since the pandemic, it brought up this question even more so because mm -hmm. with curbside owners were curbside appointments, owners were not allowed in. Uh, so we learned a lot about what is the difference between when owners are present and they're not. Uh, it is dog dependent. Overall, it's always preferable to have the owner there because they know their animal the best. They can give you feedback to say, this is what works. They're able to comfort the animal. Um, when I hear that a dog shows growling or other signs of aggression in the presence of the owner, but they don't do it in the back, it's not because the dog is relaxed and happy in the back necessarily. Most of the time it's because the dog is freezing. So they're changing their kind of coping situation from I'm gonna show aggression because I've got my safe person with here with me here to basically back me up versus I'm on my own. I just need to shut down and freeze in this situation. So it's not necessarily that the dog is better in the back. It's just that staff is able to get things done because the aggression is not present. So I always tell owners, you know, be your dog's advocate and ask like, what did my dog look like? If staff comes back and says, oh, the dog did great or they were fine, what did that look like? Because it still might be that the animal is stressed and we're not going to make progress in reducing that over time. Uh, but the owners that I work with, I try to have them be their pet's advocate to be in the room and be able to explain to the staff, you know, I know what works for my pet and these are the tools that we have. Um, but I know every clinic is different and sometimes things can't get done in the room with the owner. So I at least encourage staff to explain to the owners why they can or can't. And if a muzzle is used to tell the owner that a muzzle is being used, because sometimes they don't even know that's happening. So then the owner can be more proactive and do some muzzle training at home and can all kind of work together as a team. Can, can you explain what that looks like, the, the muzzle training at home? Um, because that is something that, you know, I've often uh, tried to explain to owners, um, but I would love it to hear it from your perspective, how they should be walking through getting their animal, especially if it's an adult animal, used to a muzzle. Yeah, I often find that owners are going very quickly through muzzle training, so it is important to break it down. And I, I tell them that you can never go too slow, but you can very easily go too fast with muzzle training. So first of all, it's finding the right muzzle. And for veterinary visits, I'm always recommending a basket muzzle. So it should be the, a type where the dog can fully pant, drink water, eat treats. I essentially tell them they can be a dog, but if they were going to lunge and bite, their teeth cannot make contact with somebody. Uh, and I start by basically putting the muzzle on the floor and putting treats inside of it. So we're turning it into a treat dispenser. And the whole idea is the dog sticks their head in, they eat treats, and they get to stick their head out. 
My goal is by the end of that first stage is every time the owner takes out the muzzle, the dog is excited, they're showing loose body language and they're excited to put their face in it. Once they're comfortable doing that, I usually progress to having the owner hold the muzzle in their hand and lure the dog to put their head in with a treat. And they don't need to keep their head in there for more than one second to get that treat and take it right out. Initially, it's just in and out. And the key is that we're never putting the muzzle towards the dog. The dog is always putting their head in on their own. It goes back to the idea of the consent-based type of training. Over time, we build the duration so the dog needs to keep their head in the muzzle for three seconds, five seconds, 10 seconds in order to achieve the treat. And at this point, we're starting to put this on cue. So for my dog, I say muzzle up, he puts his head in the muzzle and he waits there for the next signal. The last phase is putting on the straps and getting them comfortable with that. And it's still going to be very slow. So it takes time before I'm ever even closing the muzzle around the dog's head. I tell owners it can take weeks to months to really comfortably get a dog muzzle trained. But if they're pawing at it or they're rubbing their muzzle against the floor or furniture, we're going too fast and we need to reassess. There are some great desensitization video resources available online as well from some excellent trainers that kind of help show owners how slow this really needs to be. That's wonderful insight. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So when we have that animal, like you said, we might we might be really tempted to take it to the back because then the animal kind of freezes and we're able to give those vaccines really quick. Um, but it sounds like we might not be actually doing the overall best thing for the dog in that scenario. So when do we need to stop? Like, what is what do you say to clinicians? When do you need to stop and back up, use sedation, um, you know, or completely cancel this appointment or even recommend referral to a veterinary behaviorist? So there are some already established scales to help make those decisions. So I mentioned earlier, there's some programs like the Fear Free Program has a FAS, Fear Anxiety Stress Scale, where it actually says, this is where you stop and consider pre-visit medications. Uh, But I also have offered to veterinary clinics to make your own scale and decide as a team what you feel comfortable with in terms of when to stop and when to continue, because staff safety is very important. You might have some staff who is more comfortable dealing with dogs with anxiety versus others. Uh, But definitely if we're starting to see that the animal is showing any signs of panicking, especially. So I have patients who are expressing expressing anal glands, urinating, defecating, and that is just an absolute panic response. So the ideal situation is if we can catch it before we get there, then we're able to prevent uh, these negative associations with the veterinary clinic. Now, this is also where I find that sedation is very underused. Um, of course, it takes time. And sometimes when you have 15 minute appointments all day, you can't stop to sedate a patient. But if you have the time to do it that day or to schedule a drop off sedation, it's so beneficial because it'll make your examinations and your diagnostic tests more accurate because the animal is so much less stressed. I often think back to a case when I was on emergency where I had a cat who 
presented to me for a chronic history of vomiting, but that day the cat came in because he started to ingest litter. And he actually really never had a full physical exam because of his behavior. He would hiss and swat and uh, tried to bite staff members. So we scheduled him for a drop-off sedated ultrasound. And once he was sedated, I could do his examination and drop blood in a urinalysis. And immediately upon examination, I palpated an abdominal mass and it was confirmed with ultrasound. And it goes back to thinking, you know, how long ago could we have potentially treated this cat's lymphoma in the end if we just did the sedation earlier and did the examination on this cat versus he had to present to an emergency doctor to get that done? So thinking about it's going to take more time and effort to do the sedation, but it'll be so much more accurate and so much less stressful for the staff and for the patient. And so sometimes taking that little bit of time up front saves a lot of time or lost time where we could have been treating something on the hind end. And so um, last question, you know, uh, what, when you're looking at some of those uh, sedation protocols, do you have a favorite one? There's lots of talk out there about the chill protocol for dogs. Um, I know that uh, people have differing opinions on whether or not we should be using things like acepromazine, uh, because I know, um, or I've heard that that can actually inhibit, you know, um, an animal's tendency to bite or something, but it is one of the drugs that's included in that protocol. So just if you could finally, before we wrap up, just some uh, opinions on different, different uh, anti-anxiety medications and sedatives that we can use in the clinic. Yeah, we have a lot of options for our pre-visit medications. And what I find is some clinicians just get comfortable with certain ones over others. Uh, for my clients, I like to talk to them about ones that we have a lot of research behind them to help them feel comfortable with it. So trazodone, gabapentin, we have a good amount of research on those. Clonidine, uh, more so limited, but anecdotally, we are seeing a lot of improvement with that. Benzodiazepines, previously there was a lot of research on those as well. So uh, it depends on how stressed the animal is, what other medications are they on, what's their signalment, if it's an older versus a younger patient. So I will say that there's a lot of variation, but trazodone and gabapentin often are, are some of the ones that I start with. The chill protocol, I don't use it personally very often. I don't have to have my patients sedate enough. So most of the information is from what I, from what primary care vets are seeing. Um, and from what I've heard, it very much also depends on the patient. I had an owner who said I tried it for one dog and it worked great. And I used it for another dog and it had no effect. So this is what we see a lot with our pre-visit medications is it's going to depend on the individual. With acepromazine, one of the biggest concerns is that it is often uh, given on its own. And acepromazine is not an anxiolytic, it is a tranquilizer. So it will prevent the animal from moving, but it won't make them less anxious. And in turn, that actually makes things worse long-term because the animal is still stressed, but they can't really do anything about it. And it can also increase noise sensitivity. And we know a veterinary clinic can be a very loud environment sometimes. So if the dog has 
good anxiolytic effect. So they are calmer on their gabapentin or their trazodone, but they're still moving around, then adding acepromazine can be beneficial sometimes. But I just tell clients that we have to make sure that the animal is not stressed overall. Uh, so unfortunately, there's no perfect plan for that. We can just give every patient. Uh, doses vary between patients. I have some animals that on two mg per kg of trazodone are completely sedate. Others on 10 mg per kg of trazodone walking around, you have no idea they've received anything. So one of the important things I tell clients also is they need to do trials at home before they come to the vet. So we're not wasting a vet visit of, well, that didn't do anything. <laughs> Test it initially to make sure it's helping before the, the stressful event itself. Those are some really good pointers. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Well, that was all of my clinical questions. Um, however, at the end of our podcasts, we do have a fun little game for you. We have a few more questions. They're just would you rather questions. And um, it's one of my favorite parts of the episode. So would you like to play? <laughs> sure. <laughs> all right. Okay. Would you actually, this is what we were just talking about. Would you rather practice without gabapentin or without trazodone? Ooh, (laughs) I will say, so because I do prescribe a lot of serotonin medications, I much prefer having gabapentin readily available because then we're not worried about serotonin syndrome. And I see a lot of dogs with pain. Mm -hmm. So gabapentin is much more preferred for me over trazodone in those situations. So you would, you would keep your GABA. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, would you rather treat your own animal for a medical issue or would you rather have one of your trusted colleagues do it? Absolutely. I'd rather have my trusted colleagues do it. I have a primary care vet for my animals because I want somebody objective to look at them and assess them each year. Yep. I think that's a lot of us. Sometimes <laughs> when it's my own dog, my brain just shuts down. <laughs> would you rather be stuck in the clinic with a yappy high-pitched pomeranian or a howling husky probably say the howling husky that's something i'm a yeah it can be a little musical almost sometimes yes i like that versus more piercing potentially (laughs) Uh, would you rather repeat your residency or repeat high school? High school. Oh, you go back to high school? <laughs> awesome. So, residency is a, a tough few years. Yeah. So I think high school was, um, well, the benefit of residency, though, is I got to do what I love every mm. single day. But um, it was very intense three years. Yeah. I could, I definitely don't think I got to do what I loved every day of high school. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's the trade-off there. <laughs> okay, last question. If you woke up and discovered that you had like switched bodies with another one of the specialists at your practice, kind of like Freaky Friday style, would you rather it was one of the dermatologists or would you rather you were a surgeon? Ooh, Good one. I would say probably a dermatologist. Yeah, um, you'd go for derm? Yeah, as part of behavior, I see a lot of allergies. Um, mm. There is a really well-established connection between allergies and other kind of 
pruritic conditions and behavior. So I feel like I often talk about it. Um, and I just never had a passion for surgery. So behavior was a perfect specialty for me because I was never interested in surgery. <laughs> it sounds like it. We're so glad that you did that because this has been just a wonderful episode, super informative. I'm sure our audience really loved it. And again, I want to remind everybody, go now to cliniciansbrief.com and take Dr. Hauser's quiz. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to today's episode of Clinicians Brief, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, including a video version that we have on YouTube. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us. You can also listen to or watch our podcast episodes on our website at cliniciansbrief.com podcasts. Or if you'd like, drop us a line at podcasts at vetmedics.com. Clinicians Brief the Podcast is a Vet Medics production produced by Alexis Ussery and hosted by me. Dr. Alyssa Watson.